Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, wherever you may be listening to this, as it's the final Monday and the last week of the month already, but just the beginning of in-depth analysis, unapologetic opinions, and fast-paced sports talk, as I have lots to dissect here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 175 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. Or for more information, go to the website at www.jreels.com for info about the pod, archive shows, even yours truly. As it's a Monday, January the 25th, in the year of our Lord 2021, the J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. We'll go over the life of a one Henry Aaron, who passed away at the age of 86 on Friday. Arguably the last greatest living baseball player on the planet, which now gets transferred over to the Say Hey Kid, none other than Willie Mays. We'll get into everything in reference to how classy he was as an individual, ambassador of the game. So we'll touch on that and a lot of baseball news to get into as the hot stove is starting to heat up a little bit with some trades. A signing there with George Springer going to Toronto. A lot to get into as we're just a few weeks away from spring training. Also, everything happening in the NBA as we're a little bit over a month into the season. Some early surprises and disappointments to highlight the first play on the hardwood as well as Shaquille O'Neal putting Donovan Mitchell, the Utah guard, on the spot in reference to his play and taking it to the next level. You'll get my two cents on that later on. Everything that's happening on the college hardwood as the Kansas Jayhawks have now lost three straight for the first time since 2013. So we'll get a little sense of what's happening there in college basketball. Also in the NHL, everything on the ice with the Washington Capitals having to deal with their COVID cases and their main players and Alexander Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, and a $100,000 fine. The Dallas Stars getting back into the mix. Carolina Hurricanes not playing. Just a big mess there in the NHL. So we'll break that down later on, as well as Conor McGregor losing there on Saturday night to Dustin Poirier. He has a lot of plans over the next 18 months, considering he's the guy who put in his retirement back in June. But we'll get into all that later on, including my hero and zero of the week. But we have 12 NFL playoff games in the books, and now the last two are standing. One final Sunday of football before we're reintroduced to the sports dead zone round one. Remember that, people? Seemed like we had a big dead zone last year, obviously with COVID, but with that being pushed aside, so far this postseason has not been the best that the NFL has to offer. Considering that a third of these games either had some drama, intrigue, and the other eight had just been ho-hum. And those four games 
were the Indianapolis-Buffalo game in the wild card round, followed up by Baltimore and Tennessee. Last week, where the Chiefs had to hang on for dear life there at the end against the Cleveland Browns. And then the first game yesterday between the Buccaneers and Packers. But before I even get to that, here's how I sum up Championship Sunday just in a tidy nutshell before we dissect these two games. Now, I expected the results of these games to be what they were, but only in reverse. I really thought that Green Bay, being at home, having that championship game in their building, Aaron Rodgers, the odds-on favorite to win league MVP, and with all the momentum that they've had building, not only just with the regular season, but winning pretty much an easy game against the Rams the week before, despite Tampa coming in, winning their two road games, and going into Lambeau yesterday as a team that obviously were a team that beat Green Bay earlier this season down in Tampa 38-10 and was going to be a live underdog. But a lot of people, including yours truly, thought that this was going to be Green Bay's day to shine and head off to another Super Bowl, which would have been their first Super Bowl appearance since 45, 10 years ago when they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers down in Dallas. And then the late game being the closer game between Buffalo and Kansas City, where I thought that with Buffalo and all their momentum going into that game, But with Patrick Mahomes and coming off the concussion protocol and then not knowing the status of his left big toe, not a surprise that he was in the lineup and playing yesterday. But couple that, thinking that the game would be a lot closer, especially since they also played earlier this year back in Orchard Park where the Chiefs won 26-17. But going into yesterday's double dip, I thought that it was going to be Green Bay running away late and... KC and Buffalo going pretty much down to the wire in the AFC Championship game. And I was wrong on both fronts. Because the two takeaways that I got from yesterday's game, one was the turnover situation where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were able to capitalize and Green Bay, who had their opportunities, were unable to do so. But that's going to be overshadowed by the atrocious decision to kick a field goal there late in the game with Matt LaFleur. And obviously I'll dive into that in just a matter of moments. And then how Buffalo was just not ready for primetime to go up against the Chiefs who eviscerated them pretty much. Not going to say from start to finish because Buffalo did jump off to a 9-0 lead. But it's funny when you look at Buffalo scoring the first 9 points and then tacking on the last 9 points of the game but then being outscored 38-6 to in between. So the Chiefs did not miss a beat even with all the suspense leading up to the game and Mahomes, who knows what his mobility was going to be like considering he had the turf toe that he suffered the week before and him coming back from the concussion protocol as I mentioned earlier so we'll start with the first game now Tampa on their opening drive and one of the key critical points which was a theme in this game they converted on three big third downs including the touchdown pass to Mike Evans in the end zone over Kevin King who had a nightmare of a game and we'll get into that later on But they had the one key third down that was completed down that beautiful soft touch throw from Brady to Evans. And for them getting off to that quick start 7-0, the first thing I thought of, believe it or not, was the game a few years back, if you remember, where Case Keenum, and not to compare him in the same sentence with Tom Brady by any stretch, but when Minnesota marched down the field against the Eagles in the NFC Championship game and then were never to even score another point for the rest of the game, It kind of brought me back to that because I thought maybe Tampa will get off to this hot start and then Green Bay would finally get their engines going and then just take off from there. Well, they weren't able to do anything on their first drive. 
In fact, it was on their second drive where Green Bay finally made a move. There was a huge third down completion. I believe it was third and 15 where Rodgers had to come out of his end zone rolling out and he threw to Robert Tanya to get the first down. Later on that drive into the second quarter, the 50-yard touchdown pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling to tie the game. Then the Buccaneers on their next drive came back with a touchdown on their own, highlighted by the big throw there from Brady to Chris Godwin, who made an acrobatic catch there deep in Green Bay Packer territory. Followed that by a touchdown run from Leonard Fournette, who not only bulldozed, but also tippy-toed and spun his way into the end zone to make it 14-7. to And then Green Bay was unable to capitalize there on their following drive, which they kicked a field goal. They got deep into Buccaneer territory, but was not able to punch it in. They had to settle for a field goal there. And then now we fast forward to late in the first half, where Green Bay had the ball on a second and 10. Rodgers throws a pass over the middle, which was picked off by Sean Murphy Bunting. Could have been called for holding on the play. As you saw, he grabbed the jersey. I believe it was, could have been Valdez Scantling off the top of my head. I can't remember. I don't believe it was Devontae Adams. But for Murphy Bunting to get that interception there late in the first half, didn't know if Tampa was going to have enough time to convert there. It was a little bit over a minute to go. But as Tampa tried to move the ball, and they got lucky because there was a play on third down where Brady threw a pass deep into the seam, which was almost picked off by Will Redman, the defensive back there by the Packers. And if it was picked off, that would have changed the whole fate of this game, let alone that drive, because then on a fourth and three for Tampa to go for it there where Brady completed the pass to Leonard Fournette, And as now we're down to the final precious seconds of the first half, what happens? Tom Brady finds Scotty Miller streaking down the left sideline, going past the cornerback Kevin King into the end zone for a touchdown to make it 21-10. And I'm not going to say that that was the biggest play of the game. Obviously, at the time it was. And when you look at the final score, of course. But when you look at that sequence, not only was it rare for Rodgers to throw an interception there, but could have been a holding call on the defensive back. You also had the... Almost interception by Redmond. Then the completed fourth and three. And I like that the Buccaneers went for it. Now they went off the field looking like they were going to punt. They went back onto the field. And I thought it was smart of them to do so because with Green Bay in their building, you have to play aggressive. You can't play for field goals. You can't play for, you could say for field position and it would have punted the ball there. But that was a golden opportunity for them to at least try to get a field goal on on that drive. But then as you saw, The pass to Scotty Miller, how the hell he got past Kevin King is beyond me. You could definitely fault King for not staying with his man there and letting Miller get past him. But at the same time, what was the defense that was called there on that play by the Packers? So it's a combination of both, if you ask me. So the Buccaneers go into the locker room 21-10. And then right out of the gate, in the second half, start of the third quarter, Rodgers completes a pass to Aaron Jones, who gets smacked by Jordan Whitehead. Recovered by Devin White. Next play, Brady to Cameron Brayton, the end zone. It's 28-10. to And you think to yourself, could this be a route and a game that a lot of people didn't forecast? Thinking that it was going to be tooth and nail throughout or pretty much Green Bay having a 28-10 lead in this game. But that wasn't the case. Whitehead leaves the game with a shoulder injury at that play. Same for Aaron Jones as he was not to be seen after that as he had a chest injury. Now the Packers start to get going on that ensuing drive. They march down the field, get it into the end zone. They make it 28-17. Then Brady throws a pick there to Adrian Amos 
I understand you can look at that and say that could be a punt. But now that Green Bay has this momentum, and for Brady to throw that pass, I know he tried to have the safety bite to the left side of the field, but he didn't do so as Amos went in there and intercepted the pass. So now that gave Green Bay a lot of gas in their tank as they marched down the field. They also score there to make it a 28-23 game. And for what reason? And as we've seen this time after time after time with these coaches and the stupid analytics, why do you chase points that early in the game is beyond me. So at 28-23, they go for two, and I get that they've been moving the ball on the Buccaneer defense, and they have them on their heels. The Packers, who had a good play, and when you look at it, it should have been executed because although the ball was deflected by Ndamukong Tsu, but it was in the hands of the wide receiver, Equinemius St. Brown, he drops the ball, 28-23 is your score, and me included, and I'm sure a lot of other people wondered why that they go for two there. If it's late in the game, no ifs, ands, buts, babies about it. You have to do that. But when you have it there, what was it, late third quarter, for them to go for two there, it made no sense. And when you look at how the game played out, and I understand you can't look at it from that regard, but think about it. When Tampa then kicks that field goal to make it 31-23, you put yourself in this position where you have to not only get the touchdown, but go for two again, where all you had to do was just kick the extra point, you would have been down by a touchdown. So that's why you don't chase points early in the game like that. As it was, then the Buccaneers did get that field goal to make it 31-23. There was another bad interception by Brady there where he just threw it up for grabs. I understand he was being blitzed at that time. But Jair Alexander, who also got the second pick right before that last one where Brady just chucked up in the sky. Alexander, who was Johnny on the spot. The pass was overthrown there off the fingertips of Mike Evans, which was not a good throw by Brady. And that was when they were marching down the field and looked like they were going to put the game on the shelf for Tampa to pretty much cruise into victorious mode. But as it was, the Packers weren't able to capitalize after that turnover. And then even after the third interception, were unable to come away with anything substantial. In fact, I believe on that final interception they may have been the drive where the Packers kicked the field goal and obviously I'll get to that in a second but now you have a situation where the Packers are down by eight they have the ball they're moving up the field moving the chains clock is ticking now we're getting late fourth quarter the Buccaneers who had a very good pass rush Shaquille Barrett with three sacks JPP also chipped in with a couple they put a lot of pressure on Aaron Rodgers in this game I believe it was the highest percentage dropbacks to pressures sacks the combination that they had throughout the course of the game more so than any game this year so give them credit but now here you get to first and goal with about a little over three minutes to go or maybe it was a little less than that so the Packers at first and goal down eight first play drops back Rodgers he throws a fastball by the ear of Alan Lazard it was behind him and it looked like Lazard wasn't ready for the play Rodgers gave him a little side-eye after that. But to me, that was more on Rodgers. I don't know if that was the right route that Lazard was supposed to run there. Who knows? But there seemed to be a miscommunication on that play. The second down play was, I believe, a pass into the end zone to Devontae Adams, which I do not recall off the top of my head. But now the third down, where a lot of people are going to look at and say, as Rodgers was dropped back and he's looking to make a play, he actually had a lane where... It would have been close for him to get into the end zone. And we understand he's 37 years old. He may not put his body 
in that type of jeopardy as you would maybe five, six, or even 10 years ago. But that was a lane where Rodgers had a chance to run to get into pay dirt. He did have a guy next to him or on top of him or close by, I should say. And he even mentioned that in the post game. But what he did was he threw across his body where Devontae Adams was double teamed on the replay. It looked like he was held there by Devin White. They didn't call it. And to me, that was just a questionable play call. And when you look at that sequence there, as unsuccessful as that was, that's where the coach, Matt LaFleur, went ahead to kick the three points with 2.05 to go to make it 31-26. And was me, and I'm sure everybody, not only in Green Bay, but every NFL fan was wondering as to what in the hell possessed Matt LaFleur to kick a field goal there when they still needed the touchdown after that. His reasoning was... He had the two-minute warning and his three timeouts. So in essence, he had four timeouts in his back pocket and felt like his defense was going to be able to make a stop so he could get the ball back. Here's why, and this is first guess. This isn't a second guess. Here's why that that was just a terrible play all the way around. If you go for it on fourth down, and even if you miss, let's say it's incomplete, or even if Rodgers gets sacked there, at 31-23, they're in the shadow of the goal line. So... If the ball ends up there first and 10 for Tampa at the 8-yard line, their play calling is going to be very conservative at best. They're probably going to run three straight draw plays, hoping that Fournette could possibly get a first down or even Ronald Jones for that matter. They're not going to pass on that particular sequence. They're going to do whatever it takes to try to get that first down on the ground because they don't want to turn the ball over deep in their own territory. So that's number one. And even with all the timeouts that he had left, that's where you're able to burn him because if you do happen to make a stop, and even if you use your timeouts, you're going to end up with one because you had the two-minute warning there with 2.05 to go. So if you make those stops as you were hoping your defense would and you get the ball back in midfield with one timeout to go, why wouldn't you do it that way? I couldn't believe it. When the field goal unit went out and I thought to myself, what does this field goal do? It does nothing. Because you still need a touchdown anyway. So just a terrible job by LaFleur. And I get he's a second year coach. And he could say all he wants that he felt that it was the right decision at that time. And oh, it's hindsight, blah, blah, blah. But he's not going to sleep a wink this whole offseason. He's not. And it's not just from the press, fans getting on his case for not going for it on fourth in goal, especially when you have the prohibitive favorite to win the MVP of the league on your side. To me, it just it makes you scratch your head and pull every follicle out of your skull to think that they didn't go for it there with the season on the line and a trip to the Super Bowl. So I didn't understand that. And as it was, they kicked the field goal, Tamek gets the ball with 202 to go, and I get that the returner there. For Tampa, which was a bad play. I know he ran and then slid, but he left two seconds there on the clock, which helped out Green Bay in that regard because then they were still able to use the warning as a backup to save one of their timeouts on the other end. But then the irony, as bad as a move as it was for it not to go on fourth down, what he did at the two-minute warning was he took an offsides because it was second and one on that first play at 2.02 to go. Leading into the warning, which was now 156. So his defense took him offsides there to reset the downs. And then he had all his timeouts. And then on the pivotal third down, where Tyler Johnson was going across the middle, Brady looks for him, ball's overthrown. Johnson did sell the play, 
but gets called for pass interference. Who? Kevin King. The cornerback who got burned on the touchdown by Mike Evans, torched by Scotty Miller, and then the game that pretty much wrapped up Tampa's trip to go to the Super Bowl, where it wasn't a pass interference call. It was more of a hold because, as you can see, he was pulling not even his jersey. It was the undershirt under the jersey of Tyler Johnson. And what could you say? Brady, 10th trip to a Super Bowl. Tampa, their second trip in the franchise's history. Just an unbelievable turn of events there at the end of that game. And it was a clean game for the most part. Not a lot of flags thrown. Only in there until the end. I know all the people who can't stand Tom Brady and are anti-Brady. Oh, now you want to throw out a flag. And the game was rigged. And ah, please stop. Can, can we just ease up with those stupid comments? Uh, you're just wasting your time. But what a win for Tampa. And as we know, they'll be the first team to ever host the Super Bowl in their home stadium. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But the bottom line is, is that Tampa was able to convert on Green Bay's turnovers where the Packers were unable to do so. Third downs killed Green Bay all afternoon into the evening. And you have Tampa pulling off a big upset. First time a five seed beat a one seed. I believe that's in the NFC. I don't know if that meant overall. But for now, we'll just say in the NFC, first time we've ever seen that happen. And what could you say? Tampa flying high. Road Warriors, fourth team to win. Three road games to make it to the Super Bowl. We know who the other teams are. The Steelers of the 05 season. The Patriots back in 1986. The Giants in 2007. And then the Packers did it in the 2010 season. So Tampa belongs... In that company, as far as the only team to win three road games to make it to the Super Bowl. And then the irony of that is, three road games and then they end up with a home game. So, how about that? Now, if you're Green Bay, first off, this falls on your coach as far as that decision goes. And he's going to have to stomach and live with this this whole offseason. And I'm sure, again, he probably didn't sleep a wink last night and he's not going to do so until training camp because that was just as inexcusable as a call. How do you do that? For everything that I explained earlier. And then I'm going to say this about Aaron Rodgers because he came into this game with everything in front of him. And I said this last week that there would need to be an investigation as to why the Packers weren't able to make it to a Super Bowl. And part of that investigation is on the head coach, as I mentioned. But Rodgers, who had a very good game and did have the interception there, which wasn't good. But when you look at those four downs, or really the three downs there at first and goal, I don't know if Rodgers was tight. I don't know if he was feeling the pressure. I don't know what it was, but that's going to fall on him as well. Now, as a whole, again, he played well throughout the day. But those series of downs is what's going to keep him up. And I know he in his post game, said that he's got a lot to think about. The whole situation about having to clear his head. Lots of unknowns this offseason. And I get that he just swallowed a bitter pill right here. He made it to his fourth straight NFC Championship game since the first one in Chicago when he went to the Super Bowl and won. And he's been in four straight since and he's lost all four. And this guy, as we all know, is a top 10 quarterback of all time. But it's almost like the Drew Brees comments that you've heard early in the week where he may go off into retirement and now him and his track record of although winning a Super Bowl but having really nothing to show for it the past decade 
Well, guess what? Aaron Rodgers is now in that same ballpark with Drew Brees. We know he's an all-time great. We know he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But when you look at how this game unfolded, and especially those three downs, and again, he didn't have an opportunity to get that fourth down to punch his team into the end zone. But he does take a little bit of blame for how those plays were executed there. As I mentioned, the miscommunication with Lazard on first down, the second down, I believe, was just through the end zone where it was supposed to go to Devontae Adams, and then that third down where he had a lane to possibly rush it into the end zone despite pressure, but throwing it across his body into double coverage, just terrible. He might as well just sort of tucked it, ran and dove for the goal line. And despite how well he played, he's going to have to take a hit for those three plays there at the end of the game because when you look at how those plays broke down and how the lack of execution, everything on that final sequence, that falls on a quarterback. And I got nothing against Aaron Rodgers. We all know he's an all-time great, etc. Yada, yada, yada. But again, this is one that's going to not only stick in his craw, but it's going to be remembered by NFL fans for the rest of his career. And then quickly on the flip side, Brady did not have a great game. To say he had a good game was a stretch. The thing with Brady is, he made plays when he had to. Whether it was the opening drive, whether it was the pass to Scotty Miller, finding him open, whether it was the touchdown to Cameron Brait. Because in that second half, after the Brait touchdown, he was, let's face it, not good. But when you've done just enough, when you pull your team out of the fire and all he had to do was get a first down on that drive and granted that he got a call in his favor with the holding or the pass interference call on Kevin King, Brady will now march on to his 10th Super Bowl. Which is incredible when you think about it because he has almost played in 20% of the Super Bowls that have been played throughout its illustrious history. Think about that. And we can talk about all the numbers. of yada. yada we get all that. But that in itself. And I'm not going to sit here and get into the whole greatest of all time debate. If he's not up there, he's definitely in the conversation. It goes without saying. But win or lose the Super Bowl, but for him to play and make 10 of these games... How could he not be the greatest of all time? And it's interesting because I thought about this right at the end of the game. Bill Belichick, not so much because I'm sure he was ready to move on from Tom Brady. And that marriage, which rumored over the last couple of years, started to sour a little bit, even though nobody has said anything in the press, whether it's Belichick or even Brady for that matter. But what was Robert Kraft thinking as he was drinking his Sauvignon Blanc, having his kale salad with his little... Stuffed pepper on the side. He must have been sick to his stomach and maybe even cursing Bill Belichick under his breath. Now, mind you, New England has zero weapons in comparison to what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have. So he does have to look at it from that standpoint. But I'm sure Robert Kraft, who I bet did not want to let Tom Brady go. And to see his success, I'm sure he's happy. But at the same time, he has to be stewing underneath. He has to. It's only human nature. And we could get into, oh, who needed who more, and uh, please. That's just going to be a tired narrative. Right, we understand that Tampa is here because, let's face it, they had a cakewalk of a schedule those last five games, and it helped that they had their bye in week 13. Ironically, after them losing at home to the Kansas City Chiefs. But remember, they had a cakewalk of a schedule where they played Atlanta twice, Minnesota, 
and also the Detroit Lions. And then had to go to Washington, which helped out because they didn't have to worry about having to play against the NFC West champion because of how everything shook down. And then we saw what happened last week in New Orleans and how they imploded and Tampa took advantage of turnovers there and the same that they did yesterday in Green Bay. And that's what you have. The Brady magic continues for quite possibly its final time. Now to move on to the nightcap, and there's not really much to discuss here in this game. Despite the fact that Buffalo got off to a 9-0 lead, it was helped by Miko Hardman's dropped muff punt. After Buffalo in their opening drive marched down the field, they went for it on a 4th and 3, which they completed, which was very good on their part because they know they had to match point for point against this offense. And it only led to a field goal where, luckily for the Bills, they had a pass that was intercepted there by Thornhill, the defensive back, which was intended for Cole Beasley, but it was dropped. They kicked the field goal. Later on, after KC's opening drive, they had the muff punt where they were able to punch it in. They missed the extra point and hit the upright there. And at 9 nothing, I mean, you still knew that, please, there was plenty of game to go. Sometimes the Chiefs takes them a while to get going. And then right after that, they just took off. Uh, what more can you say? In fact, Miko Hardman, credit to the Chief offense and Patrick Mahomes for them trusting in Hardman as they had the one big end-around play where he rushed for 50 yards up the field. Also converted on the TD run there by Hardman to get themselves back in the game. Next thing you know, blink of an eye, it's 14-9. They tack on another touchdown there to make it 21-9. And even as the Bills, as they were trying to move the ball, and I thought right then and there, that was for them to get back in the game to at least cut it to within five. And what did they do? They settled for a field goal there. So they made it 21-12. And then Buffalo, they just couldn't get anything on track after that first drive. Josh Allen had a bad game. He did not play well in this game despite the final numbers. And a lot of that was padded because of them trailing so big late in the game. Of course, Allen then had the unsportsmanlike conduct. I understand it was out of frustration, but he threw the football in the helmet of the direction where it led to just unsportsmanlike conducts everywhere to uh, Okafor. And then with that, Stephon Diggs did not have a great game. I know he stood on the sideline long after the team was in the locker room to watch the celebration by the Chiefs. I guess to feel that burn, to feel that sting, to have him motivate into next year, which was good. But Diggs started to unravel there late. And Diggs, he had a wonderful season. The bond with him and the quarterback is unlike any other. But he also had some frustration later on as that started to bubble and resurface. And we get that Diggs is the type of guy, he's more of a me guy, although he didn't show that this year. But his frustration boiled over and he did not have a big game as well. But credit to the Chief defense for that and stopping that dynamic duo. But this was all Patrick Mahomes. This was all what he did. 29 for 38, 325 yards. Mahomes did not miss a beat here even after leaving the game last week against the Browns there with the concussion. Now they did suffer a huge injury which looks like their left tackle Eric Fisher may be out for the Super Bowl as he suffered an Achilles injury. I don't know how severe it was. I believe during the broadcast it did say that it could have been season ending. I don't know if it was a rupture or a tear but to lose him is going to be big especially with Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaquille Barrett their pass rushing linebackers which is going to be a big storyline going into the game in two weeks. 
But the thing with Buffalo, and I'll start with them there, very disappointing in this game. I get that they came out of the gate, helped by the turnover, but Kansas City, you got to give them credit to their defense, but man, it was just very disappointing to see them not get themselves together offensively after that first drive to where they were non-factors in the game. And I think part of the reason is, is because the Bills, if there's one thing they need to look at this offseason, they need a running back in the worst way. And I understand a lot of teams could use a running back. We get that. But they are too one-dimensional, and they cannot rely on their quarterback for every play, whether it's passing the football, even running it for that matter. And they were exposed yesterday. They were able to get away with it, and lucky for them against the Indianapolis Colts, to where they had to literally hang on for dear life to win that game. And then last week, they were able to contain Lamar Jackson. They knocked him out of the game. But their offense didn't really do much either. When you think about it, they only scored 10 points. And then here it was at Arrowhead yesterday. And then they got the mop-up touchdown there late. But remember, they had the big turnover, which set them up at first and goal. Besides that, they did nothing on offense throughout the course of the day. And then lastly, you could question Sean McDermott, the coach of the Bills, on a couple of things. At down 24-12, they kicked the field goal. Why kick a field goal there? What is that going to do? You might as well go for it. If you turn the ball over on down, so be it. As long as you try to get your team closer because, as we all know, you cannot trade field goals or even kick field goals against a team with as lethal as an offense as the Kansas City Chiefs have. And then when they get the touchdown there, what was it, at 38-21, why did he go for two there is beyond me. I get that he wanted to cut the lead to 15, but it didn't make any sense because even if you kick the extra point there, you're still two scores behind. I get it that you don't have to worry about converting two two-point conversions, but to me it doesn't matter. And as it was, when they got the onside kick, they ended up kicking a field goal on that drive, but when they got the onside kick, could you imagine? And just like Tony Romo said, and I'll talk about him in a second, But I even thought about that too. When they went for two there and they missed, and I thought to myself, why are you going to do that? Although the game was over, but here they were to get the two-point conversion, and then they had a chance to go into the end zone and then go for two there to cut it to within one score, but we understand it didn't happen that way. That was when the whole sequence where you had all those unsportsmanlike conducts. But McDermott didn't have a great game either. And Buffalo, I get that they're going to be a tough out moving forward. They got a young quarterback, they got the wide receiver there, but they do need, and their defense is good, and they definitely need to improve in certain areas, but they need a running back. Because without that, to at least give the option for Allen to do some play action and to really make this offense to be anywhere near the Kansas City Chiefs, they need to have that. Now, people could say, well, come on, Jay Reels. The Chiefs don't really have much of a running game either, and look what they do. But they have more weapons. They have weapons galore. Buffalo, yes, they have... Stephon Diggs, but Gabriel Davis, not, that's not a guy that you're going to count on a thousand percent. Dawson Knox, he's a good tight end. He's not Travis Kelsey. Devin Singletary, to me, he's more of a third down back. He's not your 25 carry guy. And we understand that those 25 carry guys are long gone for the most part in this league, unless your name is Derrick Henry or Ezekiel Elliott. But with the Chiefs, a guy like Darrell Williams, he's a big running back. He's a guy that's going to get those tough yards. Bills don't have that. And that's why they fall a step below and all their offensive prowess throughout the regular season and give them credit. They were 11-1 and going into that game yesterday and they averaged how many points a game? 30-some-odd points, whatever it was. 
But right, but when you're going up against the Jets and you're going up against the Patriots and you're going up against these terrible teams, of course you're going to be able to rack up points against those defenses and those type of squads that are pretty much checked out for the season. This is the playoffs. You saw what happened here the last two weeks, especially the game against the Ravens and here now against the Chiefs. You get exposed in situations like that. That's all there is to it. And as for Romo, I never got into all the hype. You know, everybody was crazy about him over the first two years, predicting plays before they happened. Him with the telestrator. Oh, watch this tight end. He's going to do this before the play happened. To me, that didn't impress me. I didn't look at that as, oh, geez, wow. He's uncovering something that I didn't know. If you watch football long enough, you're going to pretty much get an idea or get a sense of what's going to happen. Now, right, that doesn't mean that I have the crystal ball that I know exactly what's going to happen on each and every play. But when you watch football long enough, stuff like that doesn't really tickle your fancy. At least it doesn't do it for me. So to me, Romo and a lot of that bloom on the rose has been lost in my eyes. And you saw that there the last couple of weeks. You look at what happened in the end of the Kansas City-Cleveland divisional playoff game where on that third and fourth team where Chad Henney was running for the first down and he thought he had it. He said, well, that's it. The Chiefs are going to the AFC Championship game. I mean, he jumped up and down like uh, he had money on the game or had money on the play or whatever. And as we saw, Henny didn't convert it the first down and they had to go for it on fourth and one. We know what happened after that. But Romo gets too crazy. And I don't want to hear about the prediction that he made in Tampa after the game where the Chiefs beat the Buccaneers where he said, well, we're going to see these two teams back in February. At that time, you weren't going to say that. So you want to call him a prophet? Be my guest. But I'm not going to jump up and down and go crazy to think that, oh, wow, Tony Romo with this revelation as you saw in the postgame on CBS, Nate Burleson said that it was going to be a KC Tampa Super Bowl. What, should I give him kudos for that? Yeah, of course I can, because who would have thought? But at the same time, it's... Please, I, I'm not going to get too crazy about that. And Romo, yeah, he's worn on me. I could take him or leave him. It's not like, hey, get him out of here, or uh, I can't stand it. But I, I don't get... the. To me, the honeymoon with Romo's over. And... It's just sad that CBS has the game again because they had the game two years ago with the Patriots and Rams. It was supposed to be NBC's time to get the game. And what happened? What, did NBC did not re-up uh, this year? Uh, I don't get it. But here's CBS. They got the matchup they wanted, I believe, because they could look at it no matter what, whether it was Mahomes versus Rodgers or Mahomes versus Brady or even if it was Josh Allen versus Rodgers or Brady. But this is the matchup they wanted. They wanted Brady there only because of the name. And that's not to say that Rodgers would have been thrown to the trash, for that matter. But this is what they wanted to see. This past generation's greatest quarterback and greatest of all time to quite possibly the next greatest quarterback of this generation. I mean, this is a ratings bonanza times a thousand. And you know that the CBS suits, all the execs were popping Don Permignon late in the fourth quarter of the Buffalo-Kansas City game knowing that they were going to have a matchup of a lifetime. So, kudos to them. Now, when we look at these storylines, I'm not going to get really much into the game until next week. Obviously, we still have plenty of time to chew on that. But we know about Tampa, the first team to host 
the Super Bowl in their home stadium. And I know on the broadcast there yesterday, they were talking about the 79 Rams, but that doesn't count because that was in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Yes, was it pretty much right up the road from LA? Absolutely. But again, it wasn't played in the stadium where the Rams played at that time, which was Anaheim Stadium, where the Angels play their baseball games. And the 84 Niners playing in Palo Alto down the road from San Francisco, that wasn't candlestick. So this is the true home field for the Buccaneers as they make history with that win in Green Bay. Now we talked about Brady's 10 Super Bowl, but also with that, Casey going for back-to-back, which would be the first since Brady's 03-04 Patriot teams back two decades ago almost. This is also the first time of a rematch between Super Bowl teams who faced each other in the regular season, but to play in the same stadium. Never had that happen. So this is going to be a first where you'll see that. But we have had situations where the last two Super Bowl matchups where both teams played in the regular season and then played in the Super Bowl involved Tom Brady. Super Bowl 46 was the last time it happened in Indianapolis, the second Super Bowl, and then the first one, Super Bowl 42, with the Tyree helmet catch in Arizona. So Brady is always intertwined with these Super Bowl storylines, and how can he not since he's played in a million of them? So, But I will say this before I get to some NFL news and notes and then turn it over to some other things. I believe that Tampa with them being the home team, and I believe somebody said it last night, I think it was Keyshawn Johnson or even Chris Berman in primetime said that they're the road team. But I remember last year, the Chiefs had the red jerseys, so I thought that they were the home team because they flip-flop every year, so I thought the NFC team was the home team. But be that as it may, I'm going to say this right here, and I'm sure you'll probably hear this throughout the course of the week into next week, how I think this could be a disadvantage for Tampa here to not only have the game in their building, but also to have the home cooking. Because there could be a possibility where the team may be too relaxed, the comforts of their surroundings being at home. Now, I don't know how this is going to play out here when we look at next week. One thing we do know is that there is going to be no media day, especially in particular buildings. It's all going to be virtual. In fact, the Chiefs aren't going to arrive in Tampa until next Friday. So the Friday before the game, that's when they're going to arrive. But with Tampa being at home, does that mean that are they going to stay in a hotel or stay in a remote location, let's say starting next Wednesday, so they could kind of prepare in that regard as opposed to staying at home? And even though we live in a world of COVID, so it's not as if there's going to be millions of ticket requests by family, friends, etc. But even still, knowing that the game is in your backyard, it's easy just to kind of take the pedal off the metal, so to speak, and be around your family, friends, surroundings, etc., where that could possibly lead to maybe, I'm not going to say complacency, because it is a Super Bowl, but you got to wonder, will the mental edge going into this game just slip a little bit if you're the Buccaneers? Something to keep in mind, something just to leave in the back of your head, and I'm sure it's going to be brought up a thousand times, but considering it's Monday and everything is about yesterday's game and all the talk about Brady and Mahomes and the matchup. But one thing that may go unnoticed here over the course of the next few days is will Tampa Bay hosting this game, will it be an advantage because they're at home or will it be at a disadvantage because of everything I just explained? Now there's a lot of news and notes here in the NFL that I want to get to. 
And I'm going to start with what's happening in Houston. I know that the Deshaun Watson soap opera has now taken another turn where it looks like he's going to want out of Houston. What does that mean for the organization? Who knows? Because not only will they get a boatload of picks back, as I mentioned in last week's podcast, but remember, he just signed a four-year, $140 million extension before the start of the year this past season. So there's going to be a lot to be done there. Even the mayor of Houston got involved throwing his two cents in saying that not only is Deshaun Watson great for the city, but he's a great person. So he's trying to lobby and do whatever it takes to keep him in the city of Houston. But now you wonder with the coaching carousel finally coming to a close as Houston is the last team standing looking for a coach. Does that mean that the Texans go ahead and hire Eric Bieniemy as early as today? to sway or hopefully keep Deshaun Watson as a Texan for the rest of his life? Is the relationship between ownership and quarterback irreparable to the point where even bringing in the enemy is still not going to want to keep him in a Texan uniform? Fascinating to see. And I understand he's got a little leverage because of his star power. We get that he could get a lot in return for a trade. This isn't an NBA James Harden type of posturing, player empowerment type of deal. But you wonder if Deshaun Watson, as everything has been reported, will he get his wish and get himself jettisoned from the Texans? Now, I believe the Jets and the Dolphins are on his list. He does have a no trade clause, which I was unaware of last week. But you would think if he comes to New York, the coach, which he does like, Robert Salah, the new coach of the Jets, that is, being in New York, being the guy that wants to turn around the franchise, big market, etc. If that's what he's looking at at this stage of his life, then we shall see. Now, what's interesting about the Houston hire and how that takes place over the course of the next day or so is what took place in Philadelphia and in Detroit where the Eagles hire the former offensive coordinator of the Colts, Nick Sirianni, which is a guy that you figure who will work with Carson Wentz. We know the situation there went sour between Wentz and Doug Peterson. So let's see if Sirianni could work some magic and rekindle the relationship between Wentz and the fans there in Philadelphia. And pretty much was a relative no-name. Not a lot of people thought that he was going to even be hired, let alone was in the running for any of these coaching jobs here in the NFL. And then you have Dan Campbell, the former tight end who's now the Lions coach. And he came in with a roar saying that his team's not going to be pushed around anymore, that if we're going to be pushed around, we're going to push right back and we're going to bite kneecaps and do all types of things to make his team tough. And whatever works for him and his team, then so be it. But with enemy and him being the one guy that's been on the outside looking in the last few years and with all the success here in the last three years, especially with Mahomes being there. And I get that there's a lot of naysayers where they look at this as Andy Reid's offense, that it's more of a product of him, not necessarily enemy. despite the fact that enemy may run plays to the coach or run plays into the headset of Patrick Mahomes. But he deserves a shot here. I don't care if it's Andy Reid's offense and if he's the one that's drawing up all these plays. If enemy's on the staff and he's been successful on this staff, give him a job. Because if Nick Sirianni has a job, and nobody even heard of this guy prior to last Tuesday, 
then the enemy deserves to get a job as well. Now, will it be enough to keep Watson in there? That remains to be seen, but it has been a joke how the enemy has not been able to get one of these jobs over the last couple of years in particular. And I also hear that he hasn't interviewed well, and that's also been a hang up there as to why he hasn't gotten a job, but even still, we're not in these discussions, we're not in the rooms with these GMs and things of that nature, but for him not to have a job at this point is utterly ridiculous, and you could also throw in the fact about color, which you would hope in this day and age, GMs, and even with the Rooney rule, that a lot of these owners aren't looking at a coach's skin color as being a factor in getting one of these jobs. But hopefully the enemy will be the last guy standing and get this job. And listen, if the enemy's offered the job, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes back to ownership to say, well, the only reason why I'm taking this job is if the quarterback stays. And that could also be a tug of war that could go on for either days or weeks or may not even happen at all considering, as I mentioned earlier, the latest status with the quarterback and the organization. You also had Ted Thompson, who was a guy that drafted the aforementioned Aaron Rodgers for the Green Bay Packers for many years, back in the early aughts into the early part of the last decade, died at the age of 68. So tough for the Packers to go through what they did with the former GM this week and then obviously with the result yesterday. So that just adds uh, insult to injury. And then some personnel moves where Matthew Stafford, in light of everything that was talked about during the press conference for the new head coach, Stafford is going to be on his way out as they're going to look to deal him. Now, what does Stafford have left? Remains to be seen. I understand he's still young. What is he, 32, 33 years old? He does put up a lot of numbers, but in this day and age, any quarterback could put up numbers. It's a matter of winning big playoff games, and we know that Stafford has only been in the postseason twice and has lost in both of those games. Once to New Orleans, down in the Superdome, and then the game in Dallas where they should have won the game. And that was thanks to, I believe, a penalty on Ndamukong Sue, which led to the Cowboys winning, and that was the same year where they lost to the Packers with that controversial Des Bryant catch. But you wonder where Stafford's going to go here, and you would think he's going to go to a team that's going to contend or a team that's right on the cusp of contending. Who knows how that's going to unfold. And then speaking of personnel, you had Phillip Rivers and also yesterday Greg Olson. Rivers, of course, the longtime quarterback of the San Diego slash LA Chargers and just recently of the Indianapolis Colts. Calls it a career. Now he's going to coach high school, I believe, for one of his kids' high schools there down somewhere. I believe it's in, I don't know if it's in Georgia. I know they're from North Carolina, but he's going to go and do that. And the... Big question that's been thrown around over the past week is whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. And he's going to make it into the Hall of Fame. And he has the numbers, the stats. Again, you look at the NFL the way it is today as it was 30, 40 years ago. It's a totally different game. He's going to make it based on his numbers. But when you look at the overall, as far as postseason and winning big, gigantic playoff games in his life, is that on his resume? It is not. And sadly, as a quarterback, you're going to be judged by that. And we know the numbers are nice and they're gaudy. Fifth all-time in touchdowns, fifth all-time in yards, ton of completions, etc. But he is not a first-bout Hall of Famer. And 
I hate to say it, he's a bit of a compiler too. You play 17 years and the way the league is now and how the game is played, I could throw for 60,000 yards with all the fantasy numbers and the way the rules are, especially with the defense. You can't even breathe on an offensive player as you've seen time and time again. So it's not the knock rivers to make the Hall of Fame. It's the creme de la creme. It's not for the very good. It's not for the pretty good. It's for the great. And he had a very good career. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. And he's going to make it in the Hall of Fame. But when you hear his name, is it an automatic slam dunk? It is not. And to me, that's what the Hall of Fame is about. And then Greg Olson, like I mentioned, he just recently retired, formerly of the Bears and, of course, Carolina Panthers. As he'll segue that into a Fox Sports gig, you'll probably see him be a color commentator on one of these games next year. So congratulations to both of those guys. And even Vance McDonald of the Steelers, who also retired and decided to step down. Man, he went through a rough year, COVID and injuries. So he's another guy that the Steelers are going to lose on the offensive side when it comes to retooling for next year. And then speaking of the Steelers, they signed quarterback Dwayne Haskins, who was let go of by the Washington football team in a one-year deal, which I don't know if it makes any sense. We understand that he had been awful in Washington and he had the episode where he went to the strip club after a game without a mask and then later that week to a birthday party, same deal. You would think maybe a little bit of a change of scenery is going to do him some good. And with Tomlin as coach, who knows? But to me, one year, if Roethlisberger is going to come back, he's probably not going to play that much. He's going to battle with Mason Rudolph for the backup job. But I'm sure he's going to be hungry at the thought of being able to not only make the roster, but maybe even be the long-term solution. Obviously, that remains to be seen. But this was a low-risk, possibly high reward for the Steelers. But with Haskins and what you've seen here over the first year and a half, of his career, it's uh, nothing to write home about. And then lastly, you had uh, Tony Jones, the offensive tackle of the Broncos who won those two Super Bowl teams in the late 90s, had passed away at the age of 54. A lot of great things were said about him. And unfortunately, another passing in the world of sports, this time to a former champion. So thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the family of a one Tony Jones. All right, let me turn my attention to the NBA. I'll get to the baseball in a little bit because there's a lot to go over there and a lot to discuss with some of the other sports here as I continue to bring you everything that's happening here in the world of sports. As far as basketball goes, we're now a month, a little bit over a month, into an NBA season, which you have some early season surprises and some disappointments. I understand this comes with a little bit of an asterisk, but when we look at these surprises, the first team that jumps out at you are the Cleveland Cavaliers. And even though they got waxed in Boston yesterday to the tune of, was it 141-103 and where Jalen Brown scored 33 points in less than 20 minutes, which I don't think it's a record, but they made a big stink about it. But but you got to give it up to them considering that this team had the young guard in Colin Sexton who's making a leap here in the league. You also bring in Darius Garland who hasn't played as much, but that's a backcourt that they're looking to hopefully move forward to get the Cavs back to some sort of respectability and even relevancy for that matter. And then you still have a guy like Kevin Love, who's in the background, who may not even be on the team here in the weeks to come as he's been rumored to be dealt. Brooklyn 
is throwing their hat in the ring. So let's see what happens there. But give it up to Coach J.B. Bickerstaff. They traded their young first-round pick from a year ago, Kevin Porter Jr., who was sent packing to the Houston Rockets for a second-round pick only because he had gotten to a shouting match with team officials after they moved his locker to accommodate his new teammates in a one Jared Allen and Torian Prince. But you got to like what you see, and they even beat the Nets twice last week in back-to-back games, as you see a lot of those two-game series because of the schedule and COVID. So you got to like where they're going and trying to take that next step. Now, it's going to be sustainable over the course of this 72-game season. Remains to be seen as you've had a lot of teams there in the East kind of fall back. Toronto, although they have been playing better, but have not been anywhere clear, close to what they've been the last couple of years. Even the Heat, who I'm going to look at as a disappointment, but that comes with an asterisk because of the absence of Jimmy Butler, who's had to deal with COVID and being in the protocol for God knows how long. He's only played, I believe, six games. So you got to give them a little bit of a break there because they're 6-9 and nine coming into tonight's game against Brooklyn in a back-to-back with the Nets. But give it up for Cleveland. Who would have thought that at the start of the year that they would be one month in part of the top eight teams in the Eastern Conference? So they've been a real nice surprise. But unfortunately, you have more disappointments than surprises if you ask me. Because even though I know the Spurs at 9-8 and eight and nobody could probably even mention five Spurs off the top of your head or who their starting lineup is. And Phoenix, 8-7. and seven, That's about where they should be right now. Although they were kind of a trendy pick coming into this year. I know the Knicks have gotten off to a good start. Although they've stubbed their toe here of late with two straight losses. After starting off 5-3, and three, then they lost five in a row to win three. So they've been inconsistent in that regard. Or maybe consistent considering that they've gone on these streaks where they'll lose two, win three, lose three, win two, etc. But when we look at the disappointments here, I know I did mention the Heat, but what's gone down in New Orleans so far? And we understand young team with an older coach. I thought it would be a decent fit for Fan Gundy just to kind of get everybody on the same page. He's more of an old school guy. We know he's been in the league for a million years. But when you have to deal with these young guys, the Lonzo Balls of the world, obviously Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, they have a great young core. And when you have a veteran in the locker room like a J.J. Redick, you would think that the team would be a little bit better than 5-10. and 10. Now, nobody thought the record would be in reverse, 10-5, and 5, but it does cause for a little concern considering you have one of the bright young stars of the game in Zion Williamson and a very good young supporting cast led by Brandon Ingram and also Lonzo Ball, who, to me, still hasn't really blossomed into the guy that a lot of people thought he would be coming out of UCLA. We understand we had injuries early on, but still... But as far as any other surprise disappointments, none really stick out. Everybody's pretty much where they should be. Maybe Denver hasn't gotten off to the start that they should have, although they have won three in a row now. And maybe they could try to turn the corner. I know Jamal Murray really hasn't gotten off to that start that a lot of people thought he would coming off of the playoff that he had. Nikola Jokic has been phenomenal here to start off the season, but Denver still has a ways to go. I guess the other surprise you could look at is the Utah Jazz. Now that they've won eight in a row, and I know they were a big story last week when it came to the TMT post game with Shaquille O'Neal and Donovan Mitchell, where Shaq asked Donovan, what is it that you need to do to take your game to the next level because we need to see that? And I'm paraphrasing there. And all Donovan Mitchell responded was, all right. Because Shaq was putting him to the test a little bit because Donovan Mitchell, who is a phenomenal player, 
and they got him signed there long term in Utah. But if he's going to be mentioned with the elite of the game, and I'm not talking to be a top 15, top 20 player, which he's pretty much on the cusp of that if he's not there already, more on the back end of that list. But if he's trying to get to the top 10, now nobody's going to expect him to be in the LeBron, Anthony Davis, Giannis Attentacompo, James Harden, I'll even throw him in there, Kevin Durant mix. But you would think maybe second team, if he could somehow sneak up into that top 10, where they'd be somewhere between 8 and 10, that would be a place where Shaq is looking to try to push him to. And we all know at 6'5", he's a shooting guard that has had some big games, especially in the postseason, and has come up big in certain spots. But not a lot of people are expecting much from a Utah Jazz team, which has a win-ready mode right now, considering the roster that they've built and what they can potentially do. But that's what Shaq, was, I think, was basing his, I don't want to say attack, but was basing not only the question, but also to put a little pressure on him to say, hey, yeah, we see you play big in these games, but how are you going to take your game to the next level? Because there's going to need to be a next level in order for you to get to the top of the West, whether that's beating the Clippers, whether that's beating the Lakers, and even winning a championship, because we all know you need to have two stars on your team, and they do have Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley, although he's much lesser than any of the other guys that you could mention as far as tandems in the league are concerned. But with Mitchell, I like that Shaq pushed him there to give a tough answer. And even though Donovan Mitchell class in his own right by just saying, all right, and he says, well, hey, those type of comments fuel me. They push me. I don't know if he was trying to get under Mitchell's skin, but I know what his intent was to say, hey, young fella, you are a guy in this league that could take your game to the next level. And if you're going to be mentioned among the elite, you're going to have to be not only the man or the guy, but even more than that. So Shaq was right, and I applaud him for taking the lead and trying to show this kid that, yeah, you could be better despite your eight-game winning streak, or at the time, seven-game, and then Mitchell saying, yeah, you're right. I can't rest on my laurels to think that because we have this streak or because our team is good, but for us to be great, we're going to have to play at a level that's going to be championship level at the most. And... Let's see if the Jazz could do that. We all know that the West is going to be competitive, especially with both the Lakers and Clippers. And now the Clippers have been hot to the tune of them winning seven straight games. And you got to wonder, they've had some games here, that Dallas game where they got blown out by 50 at home early on in that first weekend of the NBA season. And then they had another bad loss where they had a 22-point lead against Golden State and blew that game. To me... The psyche of the LA Clippers is what's going to be the big story, not necessarily in the regular season, but come postseason. So if they're down in the series 2-1 or down in the series 3-1 or 3-2 or let's say even up 3-1 as they were against the Nuggets in the bubble, are they going to have that killer mentality to put the team away or are they just going to kind of float and play? It's just the game is kind of ebb and flow and we'll just play it minute by minute and see how it goes. They need to be a team, especially after what took place last year, they can't take any trips down to the court on both ends of the floor off at any stretch of time. Because to me, that's going to be the thing about the Clippers. Do they have the talent? Absolutely. They may not have the depth as they once did. Obviously with Montrez Harrell going across the hall to play for the Lakers. That's one guy off the top of my head. But they certainly do have 
championship talent. It's just a matter of the metal and mentality is what's lacking there. And then in the East, Sixers have played well here. You wonder if they're going to take off as they're now at the top of the Eastern Conference. The Bucks, who lost to the Lakers the other day in their building. The Bucks, that's another team. To me, they're the Clippers East. And they have less talent, even though they have the two-time reigning MVP in Giannis, a good sidekick in Chris Middleton, just good. And Drew Holiday, who's an upgrade over Eric Bledsoe, but we haven't seen Holiday play in these pressure-packed games. And you're not going to see this now. You're going to see this more in April, May, June, and with this season into July. So they still have a lot of work to do to even get to that level of the Lakers. And then you have the Nets who are trying to get their team fortified with Kyrie coming back. And although they lost the two games in Cleveland last week, but they did beat the Heat on Saturday and they will follow that up with a game against the Heat tonight. So now with all three guys on the team and raring to go, let's see how far the Brooklyn Nets could go. And let's talk about Kevin Love. Who knows? I mean, what are the Nets going to do? They're going to gut their team out. Even though I'm sure it's going to be more of a salary dump, they would have to send a salary going back. Does that mean DeAndre Jordan, which is a guy that is in the camp of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving is one of the reasons why he was brought to Brooklyn, but you would think that he would have to go and who knows what else, but we'll see if that does take place. And that's pretty much it with your NBA. Now let me quickly transition to the college game because I haven't talked about them in a couple of weeks And now we have a scenario where the number seven team in the nation, the Michigan Wolverines, who have played very well, 11-1, could miss the next four games due to a 14-day halt on all athletic activities after positive tests for a new COVID strain had surfaced. And this goes across all athletics. So whether it's the women's team, I'm sure whatever other teams that are in play right now, if you're Michigan, they're going to suspend their season now over the course of the next two weeks just to weed out this new strain and we all know there's different variants of the coronavirus that have hit and doesn't seem to be going anytime soon as we are well versed in that if you watch the news day in and day out but with Michigan and with some of the teams even Villanova as they've had their season halted a couple of times even though they're ranked number three in the country, but they have played less games. I believe off the top of my head, what are they, eight and three, I think their record is, where a lot of teams have played 14, 15 games, or maybe even less than that. But the big news this week was Kansas, a team that a lot of people thought that they could have been the favorite to win the tournament last year. Well, they've hit the skids to the point where they've lost three games and two tough ones. They did lose to Baylor there early in the week and then over the weekend to Oklahoma, two teams that are ranked. As again, first time in almost eight years that they've lost three games in a row. So Bill Self and company will have to regroup where they'll have to continue to catch the likes of Gonzaga and Baylor, both ranked one and two in the nation, uh, undefeated at the moment, followed by Villanova, Iowa, Texas, Tennessee, Michigan, then Houston, Kansas, and Wisconsin. We'll round out your top 10. The funny thing is, is that when you look at the top 25 and the mainstays that you've seen year after year, time after time, and rightfully so, are nowhere to be found. Now, we know about Kentucky, where we've talked about them from time to time over the last five to six weeks, where Kentucky had that streak where they lost six in a row and were trying to get themselves on track here to maybe 
make a run. But as we know, this isn't the Kentucky team that we've all come to either love or hate, for that matter, over the years. Right now, they're currently 5-9, and nine, and they may not even make the tournament. North Carolina, although they're 10-5, and five, but not in the top 25, although they made some improvements this year, but certainly a far cry from what they once were in the Tar Heels. And then, to go right up the road to Duke University. Now, they've had a bunch of games postponed here, but they've also been losers of three in a row to the tune of them being 5-5 five and five in the ACC, or 5-5 five and five in the college basketball overall. And right now, with the way things are looking at there for the Blue Devils, they probably will make the tournament when it's all said and done. I'm not going to sit here today and say they're not because I haven't followed them, so therefore I'm not going to start nailing their coffin to make it to the postseason here in 2021. But when you look at some of these teams that have hit the skids and have not been what they once were, and granted, recruiting, COVID, a bunch of different things I'm sure you could attributed to, but not looking well for the powerhouses of college basketball to make any type of run, forget about just a national title, but even just making it to the tournament. So we'll continue to keep our finger on the pulse when it comes to the college circuit. All right, now let me get to the baseball because there's a lot to get into here. And I'll start off with the passing of a one Henry Aaron, died at the age of 86 early Friday morning. We know the achievements, we know what he's meant to the game of baseball, we know all the records, everything that's transpired with Hammer and Hank. We could go back to that year of 1974 when he was chasing Babe Ruth and he finally broke it on April 8th, 1974, all the death threats, the racism, everything, and that's just in the time leading up to the home run. We're not even talking about what he had to endure in the 50s, the 60s, etc. Because as we all know, with baseball being such a national pastime, And the home run record symbolic of Major League Baseball to have a black man beat Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth, as we all know, is the king of the sport. I can only imagine the pressures, the abuse, everything that he had to endure during that time just to tie and surpass the great Bambino. And by him doing it, when he had the interview, he just said, I'm glad it's all over. And we know all the numbers, 755. To me, he's still the home run king. I understand Barry Bonds, 762. We could talk about that till we're blue in the face. But for Aaron, the longevity early on with the Milwaukee Braves, actually heard a story that was unfamiliar and first time I ever caught wind to it was that he actually could have been a New York Giant to play alongside Willie Mays. But because the Milwaukee Braves were willing to pay $50 more for his services, and again, we're talking 1954, or this time 1953. He said, I'm going to take the 50 bucks and I'm going to go to Milwaukee. If not, he would have stayed and you would have had Willie Mays in center and Hank Aaron in right for the New York Giants. How do you think that would have turned out? But Aaron, of course, Milwaukee Braves, was an MVP there in the late 50s, I believe 1957, which was the same year I believe they won the World Series and they beat the Yankees. And the one stat that just is mind-boggling when you think of a one Henry Aaron is if you erase the 755 home runs from his record, which of course you can't, he would still have over 3,000 hits. That's all you need to know when you look at one of the, not just one of the great players of all time, but immortal players. There are a select few, a lot of them are New York Yankees when you're looking at Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, You also look at a guy like Ty Cobb, 
Ted Williams. Well, Hank Aaron belongs on that list. As well as Willie Mays, who's now the last greatest baseball player standing. And it's interesting because a lot of people thought that Mays, him being the flashier player, him being the guy that got more pub because he played in New York to start his career, won that World Series in 54 with the amazing catch over the shoulder there against the Cleveland Indians in that game one. And then when the team moved to San Francisco and the success that he had there with Willie McCovey, making it to a World Series in 62 before they lost to the Yankees. And with Aaron, although winning that MVP in the World Series, like I said, early on, but played in Milwaukee for most of his career, then to Atlanta, not flashy, workmanlike, a guy that was a very good right fielder, wasn't a guy to try to show off his arm like a Clemente or even Willie Mays for that matter, was steady, if not spectacular. But again, when it's all said and done, most RBIs ever, most total bases ever, all-time great, baseball immortal, Henry Aaron, passed at the age of 86. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to him, as well as Don Sutton, the former Dodger, also California Angel at that time, Milwaukee Brewer, but most known for the Dodgers. 324 wins. He died at the age of 75 last Monday, I believe, or maybe it was even Tuesday. I think it was announced by his son through social media late Monday into Tuesday. And Sutton, where Aaron was before my time, but since I love baseball as a boy and it's my first love and I've watching the highlights and being able to do a lot of research on Aaron, not even prior to this, but even before just knowing who he was, number 44, et cetera. Sutton is a guy that when you look at his numbers, yes, he ended up being in the Hall of Fame because he won over 300 games, struck out over 3,000, but wasn't the best pitcher in the league, wasn't a Cy Young, had four All-Stars on his resume, but wasn't the dominant pitcher of his generation. He wasn't Seaver. He wasn't Carlton. He wasn't guys like that. Now, Gibson was a little bit before that because when you look at Sutton, he started in 66 and then had the bulk of his career pretty much in the 70s. He wasn't Jim Palmer. So for Sutton, and I understand, listen, he passed. I don't want to make it sound like I'm going to pile on him, but you could question whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. Let's just put it that way. I get he's got those two golden numbers, whether it's the 3,000 strikeouts or the 300 wins even more so. But when you look at the back of his baseball card, although it does look impressive, but he only won 20 games once. And like I said, not a Cy Young on his mantle. But be that as it may, Don Sutton passes at the age of 75. So I had to start off with those two notes because those are two big Hall of Famers. And we lost a ton of them here over the last year plus, as you well know. But when it comes to what's happening now, in the world of baseball, we finally got some things cooking on the hot stove. George Springer signs a six-year deal for $150 million with the Toronto Blue Jays. And Toronto was pretty much the only other team that the Mets would pretty much have leverage with because you heard about the rumors with Toronto. And I think that's going to be a good fit because Springer is a guy that is 31 years old. He has that championship pedigree. Whether you want to say it's tainted or not, that's on you. But he is clutch, is a big-time performer, will show those young players, the Kevin Biggios, the Bo Bichettes, the Vladimir Guerrero Juniors, the ropes on what it takes to win. Not only that, but also to be a professional. So he is a great guy to be part of a team that's on the come up. And you would think that hopefully by the time he gets to year two, three, four, that contract 
where he's still relatively productive, that team could be off and running. So I thought that was a very good pickup by the Blue Jays. Now, in the AL East, we'll stay there because there's been some wheelings and dealings that have gone on there where the Red Sox have tried to bolster their roster by signing former Dodger Enrique Hernandez, the infielder, also plays outfield as well to a two-year deal. So he brings his championship experience and also played against the Red Sox, if you remember, in the 2018 World Series to Boston. They also signed Garrett Richards to a one-year $10 million contract. He was a guy that was a pitcher for the Angels, but remember, blew out his arm and then also pitched for the Padres. Has fallen on for hard times, so the Red Sox are looking at this one-year gamble to see if they could get lightning in a bottle from a guy who was once a very promising prospect from his days out in Anaheim. But then the Yankees made a real big move and a risky one, but also one that could have a lot of upside when they traded four prospects to the Pittsburgh Pirates for Jamison Tyon. He was a guy that was the second overall pick back in 2010. He was the pick right after, if I'm not mistaken, Bryce Harper. And Tyon was a guy that had testicular cancer early on. He also had Tommy John surgery, not once, but twice. In fact, he's coming off of Tommy John surgery in 2019. So as he gets into spring training, when pitches and catches report, we won't know the health if he's going to be raring to go. You would think after a year and a half, he should be ready to go come spring training. But he's a guy that when he's on, he's a very good pitcher. And he's reunited with Garrett Cole, who happens to be a very good friend of his, going back to his days with the Pirates. So obviously he's going to have a guy to lean on, someone that he could actually get his competitive juices flowing, not only just from a professional standpoint, but also being on a team with a winning culture, the winning brand, the Yankees. And he has three more years left on his contract, which this year I believe is paying him $2.5 million. So that's a high-risk, high-reward trade made by Brian Cashman, but a very shrewd one at that. And some of the prospects they gave up were low-A, single-A prospects, so nothing that you could really look at. They didn't give up Davey Garcia's or Clark Schmidt or any of their other big-name pitchers in the process. And when you look at the Yankees real quick, not only did they bring in Tyon, they also signed Corey Kluber, and it seems like Domingo Herman, from what I've read, is going to return. He's a guy that won 18 games in 2019 before he had the issue with the domestic dispute at an event there that was hosted by the Yankees going back to that summer of 2019 or maybe into the latter part of the summer, early fall. I believe he's been cleared and it looks like the Yankees are going to bring him back even after the suspensions and in the climate that we live in. I guess they're going to give him a second chance where a lot of teams will probably just discard him and throw him off into the waiver wire. But with those three guys in the mix and with Jay Happ signing with Minnesota for one year, James Paxton still a free agent and Masahiro Tanaka still a free agent, the Yankees have turned their rotation upside down to follow Luis Severino, who's coming back from Tommy John in his own right, and obviously Garrett Cole. The Yankees have done a pretty good job here this offseason trying to retool a staff that left them short of the ALCS last year and know that this is going to be a year where it's World Series a bust if you're playing on 161st and River Avenue. And then lastly, I know that the Met fan is up in arms with Brad Hand signing with the Washington Nationals. 
but Hand wanted to close. He wasn't going to close on this team. As we know right now, it's probably going to be Edwin Diaz's job to close for the Mets this year. And despite all the grunts and groans that may come from that statement, he did have a good year last year, although he did blow saves. But he did improve in his second year, albeit a small sample, not a whole full 162-game schedule. But by bringing in hand, it would have been $10 million for a guy that probably would have been, at best, an eighth-inning reliever. And they already brought in Trevor May from Minnesota to probably be that guy to bridge from the seventh into the eighth inning and obviously to Diaz. Would it have been nice? Absolutely. But unfortunately, he goes down the turnpike to play for the Nationals this coming year. And I can't be upset. I know the Mets fan's going to be crazy and, oh, we have all this money. And the Mets are wise. I think they're doing the right thing here. Listen, would I have liked to have Brad Hand? Absolutely. But if he didn't want to close and he wanted to come here to specifically close and the Mets weren't going to offer that, then what do you expect? I can see if the Mets needed a closer and they didn't even offer Brad Hand a contract, then you have every gripe to say, what the hell are the Mets doing? But that's not the case here. So I'm not upset. I'm not going to be going crazy over the fact that they're going to lose Brad Hand. The guy who is uh, an all-star and is a very good arm out of that bullpen, but the Mets are going to go with what they have, and who knows? Maybe they have something up their sleeve here between now and the start of spring training or even the start of the season to bring in another arm. So we'll have to wait and see on that. Now, let me turn my attention quickly to the NHL and then Conor McGregor before I bid adieu. The NHL right now, as we all know with these other sports, as football is now one game away from concluding their season, and the NBA has been dealing with COVID now, whether it's the Memphis Grizzlies who have missed five games here over the stretch, or the Washington Wizards who played their first game in two weeks against the San Antonio Spurs yesterday and lost. They're going through their own issues where even though the Dallas Stars came back and swept a weekend series over Nashville to get their first two games under their belt, but now they have to deal with the Carolina Hurricanes not playing games through today, which has been a problem. And then the Washington Capitals where their biggest star and one of the game's brightest stars, Alexander Ovechkin, as well as Evgeny Kuznetsov and a couple other players are out over the course of the next, I believe now will be about seven or eight more days due to breaking COVID protocols as they were maskless in their respective hotel rooms or in their hotel rooms as a group where the team was fined $100,000 and now they're in quarantine now for over a two-week span and by now I believe it's for another seven or eight days and the Capitals have gone off to a very good start to this season but at the same time, having this issue is not going to help the situation at hand and definitely not set a good example for all the other teams out there where just like the NBA, I would think the protocols are as strict, if not even more stringent, because as you know, when teams are on the road, it's pretty much airport to hotel to arena, and then either back to the hotel or to the bus going to the airport to the next city. And we understand that these players are getting tested every day. And you also understand that even with the test and even with the strict protocols, that these guys do want to be around one another. I understand that they are getting tested and they probably felt that because we're getting tested, we can be in the same room or locker room that we could be in the same hotel room together. Well, it's a lot different when you're trying to practice social distance 
in a locker room, which is tough to begin with, but then now you're in a hotel room with three other guys and you're literally breathing on top of each other, despite the fact that you may not have COVID because you're getting tested every day, but it's the close contact and the contact tracing which becomes a problem, and therefore you can't run the risk of continuing to play with either an undetermined COVID test or one of those in-between tests that we've seen here with the NFL where they have to contact trace. But because the NFL is different, you only have a game a week where obviously in the NHL you have three to four games a week. So you have that situation when Washington doesn't look good and you only hope that the players will continue to do what they need to do in both sports, basketball and in hockey. But it seems like with hockey now, because they're trying to get their season on their way and you have these scenarios with Carolina, with Dallas, although they're playing now and now with the Capitals, that it looks like it's not going to get any better in the near future. And for all intents and purposes, it's not. So they're going to have to do a lot better than what they're doing now. And of course, the NBA is going through it with the teams that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. But the NHL right now, nothing really to get crazy about. I know Vegas was a team that I picked to go to a, and win a Stanley Cup this year. They're in the lead there out west, 5-1. and one. And the team that I picked, and I understand it was a roll of the dice, but only because it's a 56-game season. I understand no fans, but a lot of hype around a young Ranger team that I thought would really not get out of the gate quick, fast, in a hurry, but would be a team that's going to hang around, be a team that they have a good goaltender, they have good young players, I understand you need the experience, but they've gotten off to a slow start. So early on, that pick's not looking too well, especially from the Eastern Conference goals. But a lot to get into with hockey over time, especially as we get into next month and as we clear that first month hurdle as we did with the NBA. There'll be a lot more to discuss and get a better feel for these teams as we continue to march on. And then let me wrap up here with MMA and Conor McGregor, who lost to Dustin Poirier the other night. In the second round by technical knockout, I believe the first time it's ever happened to Conor McGregor in his career. And in watching it, McGregor, he came out with a bang. He was striking. You thought that he he looked great. He looked like he was pretty sharp. He didn't look like a guy that has not been in the ring for quite some time. But the layoff is what hurt him in the long run, as he said in the post-match. But... When he got hit there, and it doesn't matter. If you get stunned, whether it looks like he got hit by a feather or got hit by a ton of bricks, McGregor goes down, Poirier comes out victorious, and that's actually a rematch from a fight years ago that McGregor won. So it looks like they're going to be headed for round three because McGregor, I know he probably had his sights set on uh, Khabib, who I know they've been back and forth. There's been this all-out war between the two of those guys, and I guess they have some unfinished business between the two of them, but it looks like you're not going to see a rematch with those guys anytime soon. As Conor McGregor, back in June, retired, probably was ready to go off and do something else, realized that that wasn't the case. He came back into the ring six months later, and he got his lunch handed to him. And he blamed that on the layoff, being inactive, not fighting for X amount of time. Remember, he talked about not having the, and I'm paraphrasing here, the passion to fight, back in June when he decided to retire and for him to now all of a sudden just be part of the MMA mix here and think that he could get himself back in shape and he did get himself in good shape but there's a difference between good shape or even great shape and then fighting shape and for a guy who doesn't watch MMA 
to save his life. Even I know that. And when his future, and you look at what's next, yes, he does have Khabib on his radar, but that's going to be down the road. It looks like he's going to have a, another match with Poirier before he has a match prior to that with another fighter who, off the top of my head, it's his name eludes me, but what's next for McGregor is this. He wants to have seven fights over the next 18 months, and he's going to keep himself active. Who am I to tell Conor McGregor or anybody, for that matter, what to do with their lives? But it is comical to think that when he decided to retire six months ago, and then now he's looking at his future and pretty much trying to map out what the next 18 months look like, then why announce a retirement to begin with? He was better off saying, I need to take some time. I got to regroup. I got to focus, whatever it is. And you would have respected that more than for him to say, oh, I don't have it in me anymore. I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that. And then here he is back on the stage with his McGregor swag or whatever that move that he does throughout the course of the ring, which has been humbled right now. But for him to kind of now look at the future and say, all right, this is what I want to do and have everything mapped out, he does come across as a phony. But then again, I'm sure that's not a surprise to anybody who's listening because part of McGregor's stick is the swag, is that braggadocio, and just like with boxing where we see guys retire left and right, but then they only come back whether it's for the money or because they feel like they missed the spotlight or the fame. Usually they come back for all the wrong reasons, but... And I'm not trying to attribute that here with McGregor, but at the same time, you got to wonder whether or not part of his reason to come back is not because he has the burning passion to fight. Does he want to fight? Yes, but is it really in him to do that? Or is it based on money? Is it based on fame? Is it based on relevancy? All that. That's something he's not going to answer, of course, or may even be asked that. But at the same time, you do have to wonder if that's the case, considering what he said six months ago. So that's what we got there. When it comes to Conor McGregor. Now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Jennifer King and the Washington football team. As they promoted her to a full-time offensive assistant. As she's the first black woman to become a full-time coach in the NFL. Congratulations to her. That is a historic accomplishment, achievement. No matter how you slice it. To be a woman of color. To be a woman first and foremost. And a person of color on top of that. I don't care what anybody says in this day and age. If the woman could coach, let her coach. Listen, I don't care, woman, what color, if you just came off a spaceship, if you're from Mars, as long as you know offense and know how to read a zone blitz when it comes to having to defend that, you could be a puppy for all I care. As long as you know how to coach, bring them on. That's how I look at it. But congratulations to Jennifer King. And the Washington football team is there. My heroes of the week. And then my zero of the week is disgraced former Met GM Jared Porter for sending lewd and lascivious texts back in 2016 to a female reporter where ESPN released a story recently about this. I believe it was highlighted by Jeff Passan. And for him to have this type of behavior to go ahead and not only have these suggestive texts, but also send photos in the process. We get it. He thought he could get away with it. And I can't fault the Mets here because I know a lot of the things that I read on Twitter and social media, typical Mets, same old Mets. Uh, How the hell was the Mets supposed to know this? Now, you could talk about a person's background. Have they been implicated in any type of felonious or misdemeanor charges? That's one thing. But if the Mets 
are they really going to go in and say, hey, are you trolling women? Are you doing this? Well, I'm sure now they're going to do so. And kudos to Sandy Alderson, the president of operations for the Mets, by saying we're going to really do our due diligence and that they fell way short of this process, in particular with Jared Porter. But again, this was something that wasn't brought up. I'm sure the Mets didn't even, they looked at it, it didn't even look at it for that matter, for them to even delve further to see what really took place back in 2016 because that's more of a personal thing. But now that it's come to light, the Mets did what they had to do less than 24 hours later. Gone, goodbye. Thank you, Steve Cohen. Congratulations. And to Jared Porter, you just committed career suicide, my guy. You are my zero of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 175. I know it was a long one. I know it was a lot to get into, a lot to share. But as always, Thank you so much for taking the chance to download and listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And as I said from the very top, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on all available platforms, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music, of course, the website at www.jreels.com. The reason why I ask you to do so is because you know, you listen to the podcast, there are zillions of them. Forget about your sports all across the genres. So by you just giving me a rating, hopefully it's positive, four or five stars, even a review, which would be fantastic. Jay Reels knows what he's talking about. Jay Reels is goofy. Jay Reels is funny. Jay Reels, whatever it is. If you could do that, it's just going to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there and in turn generate interest for those who aren't familiar with my podcast so I could have them on as guests, whether that's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, writer, studio host, Those people who are in position to share with me their experiences, whether it's on the field, in the press box, in the broadcast booth, so that in turn I can share that with you guys. Because in the coming weeks, I do have a guest that's been recorded. It's in the process of being edited, so that's in the weeks to come. You can check out who that may be on the website. And that's why I need your participation to go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. So if you could do that, I greatly appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys, period, just for, again, listening to what it is I have to say about what happens in the world of sports. And if you want to reach out, please hit me up with a DM, post on my wall, social media, an email. You could do so by hitting me up on Instagram at jreels or the jreels podcast, which is strictly about the podcast and sports. On Twitter, jreels1, just a number. On Facebook, the jreels podcast. And an email by the old-fashioned way, the jreels podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, thoughts, opinions, whatever, please send them my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to the podcast, you could do so by going to www.patreon. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast to go toward the efforts of this endeavor, whether it's keeping the website up, working on building the equipment process to make this podcast even bigger and better than what it is just from a technical standpoint. So whatever it is that you want to forward, again, I would greatly and sincerely appreciate it. Because if you do know or do not know, not only is this my passion, it's been in the blood since day one. Ever since I came out of my mother's womb, it's been all about sports, baby. 51 plus years, going on 52. I'm not going anywhere. I plan to deliver the best, brightest, most up-to-date, current, entertaining, informative podcast that's out there. As you well know, I love to talk everything about what's going on on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. 
from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>